Join Global Genes in Irvine, California, September 14th and 15th for the 6th Annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. The event brings together patients, caregivers, advocates, and rare disease stakeholders to learn, connect, share, and partner. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Fulcrum Therapeutics is working to develop small molecule drugs to modulate gene activity as a way to treat certain rare diseases. The company, established by the venture capital firm Third Rock Ventures, is initially focusing on fragile X and a form of muscular dystrophy known as FSHD. We spoke to Walt Gatonic, Director of Strategy and Operations for Fulcrum, about its approach, what he's learned working in a venture capital firm, and what advice he would offer rare disease patients turned investors. Walt, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Fulcrum Therapeutics, venture investing in the rare disease space, and the changing role of patients as investors, which you'll be discussing at the upcoming Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. Let's start with Fulcrum Therapeutics. You were working at the venture capital firm Third Rock, where you focused on new company creation in the rare genetic disease space. Fulcrum Therapeutics grew out of this work. What is Fulcrum Therapeutics? That's a great question. Thank you. Fulcrum Therapeutics is a company that is, first and foremost, focused on converting the science around gene regulation into medicines for patients with genetic diseases. We saw the opportunity to make a difference for patients with fragile X syndrome and patients with FSHD, a form of muscular dystrophy, and we wanted to capitalize on that. And we actually got to the point where we felt like we just couldn't not do it. We were so compelled by the science and the opportunity to make a difference. So in a nutshell, Fulcrum is a company focused on making a difference through gene regulation. Uh, you're focused on small molecule therapeutics to, to modulate gene activity. What makes this an attractive strategy to treat rare diseases? Yeah, small molecules are, are um, tried and true modalities for, for making medicines. I think there are a number of advantages small molecules have over their large molecule uh, counterparts, antibodies, or gene therapies. First and foremost being their, their relative ease of bioavailability, their oral availability. Um, but fundamentally, the other piece of it is that uh, given what we've learned about drugging gene regulation mechanisms, we are able to treat some of these diseases at their root cause, at the genetic cause of the disease. So with things like fragile X syndrome, we can use a small molecule. In principle, we can make a oral oral drug, the pill that hopefully is taken once a day. And through that, we can treat this awful brain disease um, without having to go through the, the trouble of getting large molecules across the blood-brain barrier. And, and we think of, you know, I, th I think people often think of 
turning a, a gene on or off, but are you actually looking at modulating it where you may just upregulate activity or downregulate activity? And that's exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, we like to think about it as a dimmer switch or actually more, um, probably more accurate with the name of the company, uh, more of a balance. Um, you know, when we think, when we actually came up with the name Fulcrum Therapeutics, the concept was that we were reestablishing the balance between gene upregulation and gene downregulation. So the fulcrum is entirely tied to this concept of balance. Is there a, a particular class of compounds you're focused on, or are you on the hunt for small molecules of various classes that might have the ability in, in one disease but not necessarily another? That's a, a great question. I think when you think about gene regulation, certainly the the space where drug discovery is played in gene regulation, one often thinks about epigenetics. Um, and certainly when we think about our target classes in the area of biology that we work in, epigenetics is part of our of our arsenal, if you will. But we also think more broadly. Uh, one of the amazing things about drug discovery and certainly one of the lessons we've learned over the last 15 years, every single drug makes changes the way genes are regulated. Aspirin, aspirin itself changes 150 genes just in a patient fibroblast. So every drug has the opportunity to, to change gene regulation, and we are focusing on the set of uh, classes that are most commonly implicated in gene regulation. So epigenetics, kinases, met metabolism, things like that. Uh, you mentioned you're working on, on two programs, the first in, in Fragile X, uh, and the other uh, form of muscular dystrophy known as FSHD. Both are monogenic diseases. How are you going about the discovery work, and why have you selected these as your first two programs? And I, I think I would go back to the first thing we talked about, which is you know, we're a company that first and foremost wants to make a, a big difference in people's lives, and these are two really devastating diseases. And we see an opportunity there because of the way that genetics teach us about the biology. So both of these diseases are ones in which the genetic mutation, the causative mutation, lies outside of any protein coding sequence, but rather is a mutation in the gene regulation itself. So I'll take Fragile X as an example. The gene FMR1 is silent due to the mutation, and we are actively pursuing a program here using a small molecule that allows us to activate that gene. There are some analogies there we can draw to gene therapy, with the exception that, of course, the gene is already there. We're just turning it on. FSHD follows a number of the same principles, the big difference being that the mutation in FSHD has caused the activation of a gene called DUX4, and we have created a small molecule that allows us to silence DUX4. In the case of Fragile X or FSHD, are there current therapies available for either of those diseases? There are symptomatic therapies that offer patients some relief from the challenges of the disease, uh, but nothing that really gets at the root cause of diseases like we are aiming to do. Fulcrum's not a, a typical venture startup. You're you're well backed with funding from Third Rock and have additional money from Google Ventures. In the rare disease space, though, you're seeing patients playing an increasingly important role as investors. What are you seeing in that regard? Well, I think we're seeing a, a, a number of things, including um, part of the broader trend in, in medicine right now around patient empowerment. Um, I think we're seeing 
patient groups and wealthy individuals step up and say that it's not it's not okay that their kids, their family members um, remain unaddressed by drug discovery. And I think first and foremost, we're seeing that that passion and in some cases that economics, those economics put to work for these for these for the benefit of these patient groups. Uh, I, to what extent are you seeing um, a change in the sophistication of patient advocates as investors, and how are they looking at at getting a return from from investment? I think both of those are fantastic questions, and I think the sophistication one is is certainly something that's an interesting um, interesting issue to look at, particularly with the historical context. Um, many folks may be familiar with the CFF or Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, who was one of the really early movers in this space, really committing to helping enable Vertex to create the drugs that have now recently garnered a lot of press and, and seem to be making a fantastic difference for patients. And I think that's just an incredible example of, of what patients and venture philanthropy can accomplish. I think the 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 community, the collective patient community has grown much more sophisticated. Uh, and I think part of, part of that is CSF leading the way. And part of it is also the, the excess, the relative accessibility at which a lot of biomedical information has become. Uh, most of the patient groups that I spend time talking to have incredible depth of knowledge about the disease and the molecular biology that affects their communities. And we're starting to see that come together with significant dollars. The third piece I would add, though, is that the the place that they're making the biggest difference is actually the place in the pharma value chain, chain that is uh, the most risky, but is also the one that demands the smallest number of dollars. Pharma, pharma remains fairly conservative, mostly wanting to work on clinical stage programs. Of course, that's not universally true, but it, there's a lot of there's a lot of emphasis on later stage programs within pharma. Many invest, investors are also remaining fairly late stage, looking for later, more mature preclinical programs or even clinical programs. And what that's leaving is this gap for what you might call drug discovery starts, the initiation of drug discovery. That really that point where academic science and insights into the disease are converted into programs and molecules that might help patients. And that's an area where we're starting to see such a just groundswell of activity from patient groups who've really taken an interest in initiating the projects and the programs that otherwise aren't happening. You've had experience being on, on the inside of a venture capital firm. In broad terms, how do venture capitalists evaluate an investment? I think there are sort of two pieces you always look at, and they're both highly related. Uh, one is we always want to be making a big difference, big deltas in disease in un and, and addressing major unmet needs. And of course, that in, in principle and in, in the hope is that'll then help drive a return on investment. Of course, of course, investment firms do have fiduciary responsibility to obtain a return for their investors. Uh, so some of the things that they look at are, of course, as I mentioned, making a big difference. But then what is the probability of success in doing that? What is the timeline to doing that? What's it going to take to operationalize that? And how does the combination of those three things then tie into the capital requirement? It's a complicated, complicated equation that ultimately nets out it, you know, basically making judgment calls where there's not nearly the level of data you'd want to support the decision you have to make. 
Do venture investors see having uh, patient groups as investors being validating? Do they see other advantages in that? I think there are a number of aspects of what the patient communities have done in a given area that can be validating, but it is ultimately a case-by-case situation. Um, A lot of times, patient groups have really laid the foundation, and that alone creates a lot of um, credibility about understanding an unmet need. Um, It's one thing to to see the, the devastating impacts that a lot of these diseases have on patients and families. It's another thing to be able to quantify that with things like natural history studies or registries or to have the clinical community that can help you understand diagnostic paradigms and things like that. So I think first and foremost, they lay the foundation and that that can create credibility. And then I think the piece that goes above and beyond it is when you do have some of the um, much more well-backed organizations, like I mentioned, CFF, or some of the larger organizations like in the autism space, we might think of the Simons Foundation, where uh, given the resources they can bring to bear and the communities they can bring to bear, uh, there's a lot of uh, peripheral credibility that can come with it. Uh, patients, I think it's fair to say, have a, a dis- different risk profile than venture investors, but what can they learn from venture investors? It's a, it's a great question. It's something that I try to um, make sure I talk about whenever I speak to any patient or a parent, uh, one thing that, uh, that is absolutely critical is tapping into experts um, across many different domains of knowledge. Um, many, many patient groups have tremendous access to academics, both clinicians and basic scientists. Uh, but if, it, if at the end of the day, the goal of an organization is to seek out therapies, seek out drug discovery, they need to find experts in drug discovery, in um, uh, drug discovery and in the, the finance, financing and the capital requirements to make it happen. Um, so I think first and foremost is the, the concept around getting broad breadth of expertise around the table to make things happen as opposed to relying only on the science, only on the medicine. What about venture investors? Do, do you think there are things they can learn from patient investors? Absolutely. And I, I, I spend uh, time on this everywhere I go, which is first and foremost, if our goal is to create value, that value being defined as the way we change a patient's life, change a family's life, we have to understand that value. And we do that from the patient groups. We have to understand the change that we're trying to make in the world. From that, I think there are lots of other benefits that, that patients and patient groups can can add to the investment process. But first and foremost, defining the change we're trying to make. Walt Katonic. Director of Strategy and Operations for Fulcrum Therapeutics. Walt, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to meet Walt or learn more about patients as investors, join Global Genes for its sixth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 14th and 15th in Irvine, California. For more information, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.